Romans 9, 30 through 10, 4. And just for the sake of context, Paul's letter to the church in Rome divides in, in many respects into very neat um, divisions. And the division that we happen to be in is chapters 9 through 11. And as you would have heard last week if you were here, it deals with God's sovereign electing purpose of uh, being merciful to whom he will, having compassion on whom he will, and hardening whom he will. But all of that is set in the context of Paul's great burden for the salvation of his countrymen, who are Israelites. You'll remember, if you were here at the very beginning of this section in verses 1 through 5, Paul uh, sets out that pastoral heart. He's not just He's not just an apostle par excellence. He is a a pastor and an evangelist, and he is longing for the salvation of his countrymen because he had come out of there. He had been just like them. He had rejected the gospel just as they had. And though the apostle knew that the the reason why um, some would believe and others would not was grounded on the electing purposes of God in eternity, he also understood that there is human responsibility. And so this morning, you're going to notice that he moves out a bit from that section on the electing mercy, the sovereign electing mercy of God, and now he moves into a a rationale for Israel's unbelief. Why is it that the better part of the nation rejected the Messiah? Why is it that they rejected what the Scripture said? Why is it that they didn't believe. And here, Paul is going to go from the divine side, and he's going to move, as it were, to the human side of the rejection. And so we're looking this morning at Romans 9, beginning in verse 30, down to 10, verse 4. Paul now gives us that turn phrase that he uses throughout this book, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in what is one of the greatest prefaces that is written to any book in church history, and odd though it may be, it is John Calvin's 1550 preface to the Geneva Bible. It's a little weird to write a preface to the Bible, but John Calvin wrote a preface to the Geneva Bible, which was the precursor to the King James Version. It was the Puritan Bible, and 
It, ha- it was the first study Bible. It had Calvin's notes in the side that had been digested in Geneva through his many disciples. And, and there in the preface uh, to the Geneva Bible, John Calvin, as it were, scours the entirety of Scripture to find what he thinks is going to be the most significant verse that he can lead into this preface on, and he finds it in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Notice that, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That preface is actually called Christ, the end of the law. And in that preface, John Calvin says this, He says, this is in sum what we should seek in the whole scripture. It is to know well Jesus Christ and the infinite riches which are comprised in him and are by him offered to us from God his Father. For when the law and the prophets are carefully searched, there is not to be found in them one word which does not reduce and lead us to him. In all of the Old Testament, whether the law or the prophets, there is not one word that does not reduce and lead us to Christ. Now, that's important because Paul has been saying that throughout the totality of this letter. Paul said this back in those early sections in chapters 1 through 5. He had set out the great problem of unrighteousness, that man's great problem is that He is unrighteous and under the wrath of God. And then Paul had set out that great solution in Romans 3, 21 through 26. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And Paul will say throughout, to the Jew and to the Gentile, And that's where Paul has brought us most recently, earlier in Romans 9, as he has dealt with the subject of election and God's sovereign electing grace and mercy. But notice he ends it in verse 24. He ends that section by saying that God has had mercy on some, even on us who he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul has talked about the scope of God's mercy. That it is, a, it is a global scope. God is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of the Gentiles. And God did not just come to save Jews. He came to save Gentiles. But now a different question arises because everyone knows God gave his word to the old covenant people. Everyone knows he gave them his worship and the temple and the sacrificial system and the covenants. Everyone should know that God gave them the prophets and... Paul told us at the beginning of Romans 9, he gave them Christ, who came according to the flesh, who is God over all, the Messiah. And yet now Paul is asking a different question, and the question is, if everyone knows that God gave all those privileges to Israel in the old covenant and redemptive history until Christ came, why did so few of them believe in Christ? What made the difference? Why did they reject him wholesale? the better part of the nation. In fact, Paul will say only a remnant believed. And he pulls that out of Isaiah 1. Unless the Lord had left us a remnant, we would have become like Sodom or we would have been made like Gomorrah. He's talking about old covenant Israel. And now Paul is asking a summary question and he is bringing this all the way home. Notice he uses that 
turn phrase there in verse 30. It's the fourth question in this chapter. It's the, I believe, seventh time he uses it in this letter. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? Now, before we look at this, I do want to note that Paul's raising these questions to objections throughout. He has said, Does not the potter have power over the clay? Who are you, O man, to reply to God? Will the thing form? Say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? And Paul is anticipating and he is dealing with all the objections. And now Paul is essentially saying, You all have distracted me far too long with your objections. Let's talk about the cash value of what I'm saying, and bring this home. And so Paul is now getting into that place where he is bringing it home, and he says, what then shall we say that Gentiles have attained righteousness by faith, but Israel did not attain righteousness because they sought it by works? I want us to look at just two things this morning. The first, I want us to consider the cause of Israel's unbelief, the cause of Israel's unbelief, and then secondly, the righteousness of faith in the gospel, the cause of Israel's unbelief, the righteousness of faith in the gospel. And notice that as Paul goes into this, he he asks uh, that question and then makes something of a shocking statement. There there ought to be something of a, a, a felt shock to what Paul is saying here in verse 30. Let's read it again. He says, what shall we say? Well, here it is. Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, and by the way, the Gentile world of their day was radical in their rebellion. Nobody was seeking righteousness. Everybody was living hedonistically, doing whatever they wanted, unchecked, unmoored to the nth degree. And that ought to be shocking. They did not pursue righteousness, but they have attained it. Many Gentiles were believing the gospel, were coming out of darkness, were being brought into the covenant people, were being integrated into the true Israel. But Paul says in verse 31, but Israel, who did pursue a law that would lead to righteousness, did not reach that law. They didn't get the righteousness they thought they were attaining for. Um, You know, this really ought to be shocking to us in some sense because it magnifies the grace of God in the gospel. Here are nations that are running to hell and God said, I'm going to save them. And here's a nation saying, we want to please God and do what's right and establish righteousness and they don't attain it. Don't miss this. That's the shocking nature of what's Paul saying. God's grace is such that those who weren't seeking found and those who were seeking but seeking in the wrong way didn't. Because it's not by human effort. I was reminded today, in 1931, C.S. Lewis was converted. And if you know anything of the history of Lewis, his mom dies of cancer. He's sort of bitter at God about that. He moves from skepticism to atheism to agnosticism to general theism. And then on this day in 1931, he writes a letter to his friend Arthur, who he had spent time with with Tolkien, and having been converted, walking through a zoo, thinking about the gospel, he says this, he says, I have just passed on from believing in God generally to definitively believing in Christ in Christianity. Now, Lewis was very zealous prior to his conversion. 
He was seeking. He was seeking. He was seeking until the Lord had mercy on him and he came and believed in Christ. Now, what Paul is saying is that Israel was seeking. And, and it was their, their seeking that actually gave him something of an admiration. You have to listen very carefully because Paul's going to criticize how they're seeking, what they're seeking, and why they're seeking. But, but there's almost an admiration here. Notice this. Paul actually says in ver- chapter 10, verse 2, look at 10, verse 2. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul saw the Jewish people in the religious zeal. He knew it because Paul said nobody was more zealous than he had been. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was zealous for the law. He was zealous for the tradition of the fathers. He was zealous for the nation. Um, This is also Paul who, after he's converted, writes to the church and says, it is good to be zealous for a good thing always. Zeal is good. No one, let me put it this way, no one wants to hang out with drab people that aren't zealous. There, I said it. Many others have said that. Spurgeon said that. We like earnest people. We like zealous people. Maybe not too earnest, but just enough. Just enough zeal. Paul saw zeal in the Jewish people, and he, he was admiring that. But then Paul says, notice, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. By the way, there is almost nothing more dangerous than to be zealous for something you're not as knowledgeable as you think you are over. And there's almost nothing more dangerous than, than to be super zealous when you think you're more knowledgeable than you are. And Paul said they were zealous, but not according to knowledge. And here he means the knowledge of Scripture, the knowledge of what God had revealed in Scripture. Now, Israel should have known. They should have known. They had the special revelation. The Gentiles didn't. Here are people that didn't have all the special revelation. God is having mercy on them. Here are people who had it all, and they don't understand it. They don't know it. They don't understand that the gospel was everywhere in the Old Testament. They don't understand that the sacrificial system was pointing to Christ. They don't understand that the priesthood was pointing to Christ. They don't understand that the temple was pointing to Christ. They don't understand that the prophets were speaking of Christ. They don't understand that the exile and the restoration that the prophets prophesied of were pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. They did not understand that the servant song of Isaiah was about Christ. They did not understand that every part of the Old Testament was preparing and pointing to Christ. And yet they were zealous. Now, there is a word there for us, a word of caution, that we too can be zealous for things that we know very little about or that we have improper knowledge of, especially in the realm of religion and spirituality. You know, what Paul says about the Jews is true of the better part of the Islamic world. It's true of the better part of the Hindu world. It's true of the better part of the Buddhist world and the monistic religions and the animistic religions. And dare I say it, it is true of much of the evangelical world. Don't miss this. Paul is not just saying this was only true of this people and it's not true for anyone else. There are myriads of people who give all of their strength, all of their time, all of their energy to religion and to God generally and don't know Christ. And that's sobering. That's why Israel didn't attain to the righteousness that the Gentiles attained to. 
listen to this. Eric Alexander says, it is possible to have religious zeal without salvation. That's scary. It is possible. It's also possible to have no zeal without salvation. It's possible to be a bump on a log and don't care, and it's possible to be zealous and not have salvation. He says it is possible to have religious zeal without salvation. There are forms of religion, even forms of evangelical fanaticism, that are not based on knowledge of the glory of God. As was true of the Israelites, so it is true in our own generation. Um, You know, we don't hear this enough because it sounds like we're saying, well, we're up here and they're down here, and we're not saying that. It doesn't help anybody to say, well, they all love God because look how zealous they are. They talk the talk. Their whole life is a mile long and an inch deep, but they know God. Maybe not. Maybe not. Paul says they had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. And notice this. He says in verse 3 of chapter 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Uh, You know, Israel was very zealous for the Torah, very zealous for the 613 laws God had given Moses, very zealous for their traditional additions to those laws. And and they were, the better part of them, were vigorously um, working to try to establish righteousness that would, on Judgment Day, bring them to eternal glory. They, they were, if I can say this this morning, Israel was salvation-minded, but not salvation-minded according to God's truth. They were aiming for eternal life. They were hoping for it. They were working for it, but that was the problem. They were working for it. That was the problem. They were zealous, and they were laboring for it. And Paul said they, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, By the way, I'm going to say this this morning. The greatest detriment to our spiritual well-being is to try to establish our own righteousness. And if I can tell you this this morning, oftentimes that does not come in me being like, I'm trying to establish my own righteousness. I don't know who I was copying there, but I I don't know. It felt right at the time. Um, People are not conscious so often that they're doing that. We are not. But when we talk about others as if we're better than them, or we're like, well, I do this and this and this and this. They should do this and this. Or if we're hypercritical, I don't know. If I was in charge, I'd do that and that and that. Or if I was this guy, I'd be doing this and this. We may be doing the exact same thing Israel was doing. Because self-righteousness is deeply ingrained in every one of our hearts because our consciences are hardwired to the covenant of works in Adam. And that means that even though we can never attain to it by trying to work for it, all of us have a penchant to do that by nature, starting with me and everyone in this room. And all of Israel embraced it, and they took the law, and they locked it in religiously. And they taught each other, this is what you need. And they did not hear what God's word was saying and what God was saying and about God's provision. You know, it's really a contrast between the legal way of righteousness and the grace way of righteousness. That's really what Paul's saying. There's a legal way of righteousness. And and Paul will unpack this in Galatians chapter 3. He'll say, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in 
all things written in the law to do them. He will say here in Romans chapter 10 that, that um, the law demands righteousness and that if someone is going to attain life by law keeping, he or she has to keep all of it perfectly. That's the demand. Israel didn't understand that. Israel didn't understand the nature of God's righteousness. They didn't understand that they had no righteousness. They didn't understand that God required it of it and that only he provided it by grace. They were going at it legally. The legal way and the grace way. Listen to this, John Calvin. He says, this example of the Jews ought indeed justly to terrify all those who strive to obtain the kingdom of God by works. I hope you didn't miss that. That might be the strongest word I have for you this morning. It ought to terrify you. Um, We are too glib. That's why we often miss it. He said, this example of the Jews ought to terrify all those who strive to obtain the kingdom of God by works. He says, instead, we ought to cast both eyes on the mercy of God alone without casting one glance on the worthiness of ourselves. Did you hear that? Both eyes on the mercy of God alone, not one eye on any worthiness in ourselves. By the way, as I've reflected on Paul in Romans, why does Paul keep bringing this up over and over and over? Because he knows how hard it is to get it. There's nothing more contrary to my legal spirit than to hear you do nothing. You get everything freely by grace. You cannot work for it. That's offensive to the the natural man hates that. Hates it because we are proud by nature. The Jewish people hated hearing the message Paul was And yet it's the only message by which we will ever attain to the righteousness we need to pass through the judgment on the last day. I want us to consider also how it was not just this general sense of uh, grace and righteousness, but it was all placed in Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 32. He says, why? Why didn't they attain? Why didn't they get the righteousness they were aiming for? Notice this. He says, because they did it by works. He said they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he goes back to the Psalms. And he quotes, behold, I'm laying in Zion. I'm sorry, he goes back to Isaiah chapter 8 and 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Who is the stone of stumbling and rock of offense? It is Christ. One of the great illustrations I read in preparation for this is Paul is essentially liking to all of Israel running in a race and, and doing hurdles and running as fast as they can, trying to, get, trying to get righteousness. And God puts one big hurdle in front of them, and it's Jesus, and they all fall over it and don't make it to the end. By the way, nothing is more painful than watching runners trip over hurdles. It hurts my face whenever I see it. And, and yet that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying when we see Israel's unbelief, we should think, wow, they all stumbled in the race over Christ. They could not see that it's all in Christ. They could not see that it's only in Jesus. They could not see their need for his sacrifice. They could not see their need for his righteousness. 
They could not see their need for a sufficient Savior who would do everything and that they could do nothing. And so he became the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Now notice Paul does transition there and he says, whoever though believes in him, quoting Isaiah 28, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What a sweet word. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus, if you are trusting in him, you will never be put to shame on judgment day. There will be no shame for all the wicked and sinful things you've done, the sinful thoughts, the sinful words, the sinful actions. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. And that's all you've got to do is believe. Really and truly trust in him. That's not a work. Paul's not saying there's a new law, a new work. He's saying we are to receive him. We are to rest in him. We are to cast our soul's eternal good on him and say, Lord, I believe that you are who the scriptures say you are. I believe that you did what you have said you did and I am trusting in you to save me because you and you alone are an anchor for my soul and you and you alone are the righteousness I need and long for. Now let's consider briefly the righteousness of faith again in the gospel as Paul comes into this and he says, There in verse 3, for they being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Outside of themselves, comes from God, is provided to us. Listen to this. Eric Alexander again says, righteousness is what God is in his person. This is his great character and characteristic. This is what he demands of us. And righteousness is precisely what not one of us possesses. Righteousness is what not one of us possesses. Paul says at the beginning of this letter, there is none righteous, no, not one. He says God is a righteous God. He demands righteousness of his people. They do not have it. They cannot obtain it except he graciously provides it to them. Isn't that awesome? What God requires of you he provides in the gospel. What he requires of you, he provides freely for you. Um, Notice Paul says, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then the great verse, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, Paul is not saying there is no more law. We read the Ten Commandments every Lord's Day. We have them placarded up on one of these. Every Lord's Day, we read the Ten Commandments. And and we acknowledge that God's moral law continues for all time. And yet, we recognize that no one will be justified by trying to keep it. And that Christ has brought the law as a way of salvation to an absolute end in order to provide the righteousness that we need and that we receive by faith alone. What a glorious statement. Christ is the end of the law as a covenant of works for righteousness. Now that means, when we really get that, that we never want to take our eyes off the Lord Jesus. We never want to take our eyes off the cross. 
We never want to turn our eyes on ourselves and say, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to do better. I'll do better next time. Maybe I'll stop doing this next time. And when we cast our eyes on Jesus, we'll stop doing those things because we're drawn to him. And when we're drawn to him, we're drawn away from sin. And we're drawn into paths of righteousness, but not to establish righteousness, but as the fruit that we've been drawn to him and justified by him. I was thinking about this this morning. You know, you may get tired of hearing this as we've gone through Romans. I don't. I need to hear this every day of my short and sinful life. Because according to Paul and according to the scriptures, this is everything. This is everything. You know, God may give you all another day of life. You may be five, you may be 95. Um, We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And everything we have ever said, done, or thought, and this is terrifying, is going to be laid bare and laid open. But if you're in Christ by faith, you are clothed in his righteousness His blood has atoned for those sins. You have already passed from death to life. You are already righteous in Christ. And it's all because God said, I will be gracious to this one and this one and this one and this one out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. What an awesome God we have. What an awesome God we have that our God who is righteous, who requires righteousness of us, who knows we have none, provides it freely by his grace in the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, how desperately we need to hear these things. We do know and believe that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe, and we are thankful that you have given us the Lord Jesus, the righteous one. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have stood in our place, the just for the unjust, that you might bring us to God. We thank you that you have established a perfect status of righteous, and that you have imputed that to us by grace alone, through faith alone. Oh God, let us never forget that this and this alone is the way of righteousness. We pray, our Father, that where there are legal uprisings in our hearts, where we may be seeking to establish our own righteousness through zeal without knowledge, through legal attempts to secure righteousness, you would free us from that, that you would help us to rest and bask in your grace in the Lord Jesus, that you would help us to fix both of our eyes on him and not put one on ourselves and our any supposed worthiness. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work these truths deep into us and that you would cause us to rejoice in you and glory in you because of them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.